0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jamie Attenberg to the program today. Jamie is a best-selling novelist. Her titles include The Kept Man, The Middlesteens, and All Grown Up. Today we'll be talking about her latest, All This Could Be Yours, which was named to Best Books of the Fall lists by many media outlets, including Time Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, and the BBC. Jamie, all this could be years opens with an unhappy older couple in the midst of being unhappy with each other. Who are Victor and Barbara at this point in their lives?
1: Well, Victor Tuckman and Barbara Tuckman have been married for a long time. They have two grown children, and they lived in Connecticut for a long time and they're sort of in exile down in New Orleans for various scandalous reasons that are sort of revealed throughout the novel. And I wouldn't say that theirs is a loveless marriage because I think both of them loved each other at a certain point in time, but they are a little bit more stuck with each other now.
0: And it seems that defining what love is was pretty fraught for them over the years.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Victor actually was interested in defining... (laughs) <laughs> love, But Barbara, she was certainly madly in love with him when they got together originally. And, you know, he is a really bad man and was abusive to her over the years.
0: And in that first section, you talk about at that point, he could have reflected back on his could life. Have
1: apologized. Yeah.
0: But he chose lashing out again.
1: I mean, the first sense is that he's an angry man. It tells you that he's an angry man. I mean, what he has to be angry about. He's been angry his entire life. I think some people are just born angry, but... You know, you get about two or three pages in Victor's perspective and then he has a heart attack and we don't see his perspective again. I just kind of like dove in, showed you who he was for a little bit and then I just stuck him in a coma for the rest of the book.
0: So do you think his backstory wasn't very interesting or you just couldn't stand to be around the man? I
1: mean I didn't – I grudgingly even put him in there. I do think his backstory is interesting. I just am not interested in his perspective on it. So I gave a lot of attention to many other characters in the book, but I feel like we've heard enough from men like him.
0: We see that it took 90 minutes from the time he had his heart attack to the EMTs to get there. So it makes us wonder, did Barbara not know that he had had the heart attack for a while or did she just let him sit there for a while?
1: Oh, no, I think I don't think she knew right away. And then she didn't find him. She was sitting in the other room, ignoring him, <laughs> <laughs> flipping through her magazine, her architectural digest full of things she can't afford anymore.
0: What about the row of clocks above her head?
1: I mean, I don't know. They were just there. I just saw them there. Time was passing, I guess.
0: You said he's a terrible person. His thing is owning and controlling, not only things, places, but also people in his family.
1: Yeah. He's a mercenary in a lot of ways. He doesn't really... He's not a religious person. He doesn't have faith in anything, really. He doesn't believe anything happens after you die. And he just sort of takes what he wants. And he is like an uber capitalist, for sure. Everyone in that family is kind of a capitalist in their way, for better or for worse. And, yeah, he's just, you know, he's a bad guy.
0: The old cliche, knows the price of everything but the value of nothing.
1: Right. That's good. I should put that in there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, their daughter, Alex, lives up in Chicago and— She gets news that her father's had a heart attack and that she has mixed feelings about that.
1: You know, she kind of had cut off, not fully cut off contact with her family, but had like, you know, was just sort of doing the bare minimum with her parents, I should say. She's close to her brother, Gary, and then had sort of been interested in finding out the family secrets and given up on it. They're kind of a really nosy family, all of them in general, for better or for worse. And then he has this heart attack and she thinks this is like maybe her opportunity to learn the truth about her family I'm being very careful because I don't want to give away any of the secrets (laughs) of the family at all. I don't usually have books that have like a lot of plot in them. Like a lot of my books are about, you know, minor emotional moments moving forward. And this book has so much that happens in it. And so I'm just like... I'm really proud of that fact. And I like the idea that people get surprised when they read it, that there's big surprises that are coming in the book. But yeah, she does go, she goes to New Orleans and, you know, she's resolved to find out the truth about him and is also forced to confront, you know, her feelings towards him. And the book in part is about what happens when we're forced to grieve for people that we don't really like.
0: While her mother stayed with Victor these many, many years, when an untenable situation happened, her relationship with her husband, who is a Flander she was able to make that break.
1: I don't think she really wanted to repeat any sort of negative relationships with her husband. She's like learned that she doesn't want to stay. You know, she's watched her mother stay with somebody for so long when they had like a complicated and perhaps even bad relationship. She was able to break free because she just couldn't tolerate it anymore.
0: But then in living a life in a reactionary way to your parents sets you up to make new mistakes.
1: Is that true? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I just think being aware of stuff is good anyway. And also I think like, I mean, a lot of this book is about not blaming your parents for your choices now, because at a certain point, you just have to move forward. I don't necessarily believe in closure, but I do believe in moving forward.
0: Both her daughter and her brother, Gary's daughter, are away for the summer, mm-hmm. so that they gratefully haven't been dragged into this very awkward situation.
1: Yeah. One's at science camp and one's in Colorado with Alex's ex-husband, and, but they sort of show up in and out of the book, I suppose.
0: Alex, with her ex-husband, even though he was quite the cad, tries to maintain the high road. She doesn't let her pettiness and, I mean, righteous indignation show through when she's dealing with her daughter in context to her father.
1: Yeah, that's true. She's trying to be a good role model, I think, for her daughter.
0: Now, why do you think Barbara is so resistant in sharing her perspective on her relationship with Victor, with her daughter?
1: I don't know. I think they're her secrets. I think she feels like they're her secrets, and it's not any of her daughter's business.
0: Now, Barbara herself, we do get to see into her relationship and her secrets.
1: I know, but I don't want to give any away,
0: right? Uh, <laughs> but but we get to see that, and so it, it puts us in a in a situation where we know more than some of the characters do. Yeah. yeah. And uh,
1: how did you uh, like? What did you think about that? Did it make uh, you feel uncomfortable, or did you like that experience?
0: Since we're getting into everybody's head, I was comfortable with that, and I understood why she wouldn't want to rehash that with her daughter, it made complete sense that she just would not want to go over that stuff again.
1: Yeah. It's a tricky kind of thing because you do go through the book and like some people get some information and some people don't get any information. And I mean, again, the point of it really is like, I don't think it matters. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I personally wouldn't want to know my family secrets and... I don't know that closure is really such an important thing. I I really think it's about just like growing up and taking a responsibility. I mean, I suppose it could be helpful for some reasons to know your family secrets, maybe when it came to health issues or something like that, or family background, I should say. But yeah, I don't know. I wanted to play with that. I wanted to play with like, you know, why Alex needed to know certain things. And I wanted to play with the way information is revealed. And I mean, I feel like we're all like, accustomed to getting access to all the information that we want, whether we want, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes whether it's good for us or not. I mean, we have all, all this access to social media. I saw a friend recently, I hadn't seen her in a really long time, just an old, old dear friend. And she told me that she'd gotten divorced. And I was really proud of her that I hadn't had no idea based on social media that she'd gotten divorced. You know, she just was like, I have kids and it's not really anybody's business and people who know me. Learned that, and people on Facebook, you know, we have friends with all these people that we don't, you know, may know or may not know that well. And she just said, you know, I just didn't think it was right really to post it. And I was just really impressed with that and thought that's just the way to handle these things. And it used to be how everybody used to handle these things before we had a box to put the information into. And I say that as somebody who shares a lot of things about my life, but I only share certain things about my life at the same time. Anyway, it's definitely a commentary on access to information and the way that we communicate and share things about our lives now.
0: There is a refreshing lack of social media inside the story.
1: Yeah. I made sure Alex's phone died real quick. Barbara and Victor are too old for that sort of thing. Not that old people aren't on it, but in their in their way, they're too old for it. Gary is not on it. The kids are on it a little bit, but they're not primary characters in the book. The book is set in New Orleans where I live, and I have a lot of friends there who aren't really doing social media and have no interest in it and are basically just living their lives, which is very refreshing.
0: Is it because it's such a a nice compact city that you don't feel like held back by having to travel a long distance to go socialize with people that it gives you more time just to to see see
1: people? Yeah, I see like my friends all the time. I used to live in New York and I would never see anyone and now in New Orleans, I see people, I mean, I could go out every single night of the week very easily. So yeah, I don't know. And also just like, I guess you do find out about things online, like you find out about events online, but they're still like alt weeklies and newspapers and word of mouth and running into people and people keep tabs on other people or cultural events that they're interested in. And I don't know. It just seems like people have better things to do with their time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, there is a a point in the book in which a character talks about the different types of transplants who come down to New Orleans. Which one of those types did you feel you identified with?
1: Somebody else brought that up, and I'm trying to remember. I mean, I think it was like probably whatever the late last person was that showed up. People who moved to New Orleans pre-Katrina versus post-Katrina versus post-Post. Katrina. I didn't state it like that in the book, but it's kind of people are always asking you why you moved down there when you live there. I don't get it asked as much anymore, but the minute I open my mouth, everyone knows that I'm not from there. And kind of take a look at me if they know I'm not from there. So, you know, whatever whoever was the last one in the door is who I am. I've been there about four years.
0: The Tuckman family, no one is native to New Orleans. They they've all come there for the different reasons. Why did Gary and Twyla end up in New Orleans?
1: Gary moved down there because he had a job in film. And his wife, Twyla, they have a baby together, and she joined him, and they moved from Los Angeles. So there was like a film boom post-Katrina. There was film and TV that was shot there before then, but there was a specific kind of film boom that was going on down there. And so I guess I just sort of wanted to represent that in fiction.
0: And they all seem to complain about the heat.
1: It's uh, a very hot day in August. I don't know. It gets hot here, right? Oh, in yeah. In Memphis. Yeah, super hot. Is it the same kind of heat? Is it hot? Is it humid? We
0: get a lot of humidity. It's not as bad as New Orleans or Houston, but it's definitely worse than, say, Nashville or Atlanta.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've done three summers in a row there, which was hot. <laughs> it was really hot. I started to get into it. I didn't the first summer. I thought this is insane. And then last summer, I was like, I just kind of drank my way through it. And then the summer, I didn't drink. And I worked a lot. I worked a lot last summer, too. But I actually wrote this book last summer or two summers ago. But this past summer, I worked on a book proposal and I just took a lot of walks in the heat. I would get up really early or I would do it like right around sunset and I would just walk and walk and and just be really focused and just like kind of viewed it as winter as opposed to summer, which I think is what you're supposed to do and thought this is a really good opportunity for me to kind of like gather myself, especially because I had this book coming out and I had a massive tour. And so I thought, let me just stay calm and quiet and hang out with my dog. Because I wrote a lot of this book last summer, I mean, I'd already intended it for it to be. I feel like setting it also in the summer is kind of when you see the real New Orleans because the city empties out. So it's just like everybody who's there is like who lives there. Whereas if I had set it on Mardi Gras, like it wouldn't feel like real life, you know, like everyday life.
0: You're originally from the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between bundling up versus – you can only take off so many clothes and still be acceptable in public.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose so. It's like, yeah, it's really hot. Everyone looks really grubby. There's not a lot of glamour in the summer. But I don't I kind
0: of like I got, You find that freeing? I
1: kind of got, I kind of gotten into it. Although the problem is, of course, now the summers last longer which I sort of talk about a little bit in the book, but even longer and I think it was like up until I started tour mid-October. Even first 2 weeks of October, it was so hot and everyone was like, "No, this is too hot. this has gone on for too long." That's a little crazy making it goes on as long as it does. But now that I'm back, I just came back a little bit from tour and it's fall and it was like I missed the sweet spot. There's like two weeks where it's really, I mean, it's nice right now, but it was really beautiful weather apparently when I was gone.
0: That first week of October was brutal. It was up up in the upper nineties here. It
1: was really hot. Why? I mean, I know why.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I remember once after 9-11, I was down in New Orleans on Thanksgiving weekend. uh, It was tremendously hot then too. It was like 75 degrees at midnight.
1: You kind of like lose your mind a little bit at night because you think, oh, it's so cool out now. Like, am I going to, Catch a cold, and it's eighty degrees. You know, it's very fine. It's fascinating to watch. Next summer, I might be gone a little bit more. I might have earned it.
0: Find a writer's retreat up in. The I do. Or I have something. some. I already
1: have some. Yes, I have some conferences. I'm going to teach at out of town, so I'm saying sort of saying yes to everything <laughs> that I might not ordinarily say yes to.
0: I read that you had spent chunks of time down there before you moved. What times a year were? But you I was there before?
1: in the winter. Uh, but I knew what the summer. I'd been down there in the summer a couple of times, so I knew what it what it was like. And I think once you get into it, I think it's fine. I mean, you just sort of deal with it. I go to the mall a lot and just walk around and look at things.
0: Go see a movie or two. Go
1: see three movies in a row. I don't know. I figured it out, I think. It's just those first two weeks in October, but.
0: Gary's wife, Twyla, is originally from Alabama, and mm-hmm. she really doesn't have the background to deal with what's all going on in the Tuckman family, it seems like.
1: I want to say one thing about Twyla that was really interesting is that I had her growing up on a pecan farm in Alabama, and I did go to... Alabama, to visit a pecan farm. It was like a really good part of my research because I just remember – I'm going to answer your question in a second, but I was just thinking (laughs) – I'm trying to like not talk about her by talking about something else. But I just remember um, I went there and I was talking to the people who ran the pecan farm and I was like, well, do you mind if I walk around and look at things? And they said no because it rained last night and so there's snakes everywhere. And that was a thing that I could like never have known unless I'd gone there and so I wrote in some snakes into the book like in, on a pecan farm scene and it was just like a really delightful like piece of research, you know, that informed the writing of the book that I don't know if I could have learned about just like Googling pecan farm. Kind sometimes you got to go visit the pecan farms, I guess. Yeah. So Twyla is, you know, she's a makeup girl. She was born into this small town Christian Alabama family and she moves to L.A., where she meets her husband, Gary. And the Tuckmans are very different than her family because they're just all like very intense and unhappy. And But she does love her husband, I think. So things go awry. I don't want to say much more.
0: That's one of the, the mysteries, the dramas, yeah. the, the questions that are unanswered in the book is yeah. why is Gary in Los Angeles and why is he not coming back?
1: Why is he not coming back? Yes. Well, that's – We'll leave it at that.
0: (laughs) And it does help add drama to the story that that has very strong characters. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He just sort of shows up here and there and, you know, contributes where he needs to.
0: On a side note, I recently read an article about the snake thing and it was – The snake in the rain? uh, Not not the rain but that um, in parts that have lots of oak trees where cicadas will burrow underneath – The cicadas will come up, and that attracts copperhead snakes in particular. And so there have been instances of like thirty or forty snakes just converging on people's yards to eat up the the cicadas, and just freaks people out. Just to have—I
1: mean, I'm going to have a a dream about it tonight, probably.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, copperheads. (laughs) It's all right. I apologize. It's good for your
1: subconscious to uh, tackle things. I think it's never the thing that you think it is, anyway. You're all, or you know, or you're everything in the dream, I guess. So I'll be the snakes
0: really engaging in the book to see you give voices to people beyond the Tuckman family. You have Corey the EMT and you have Sierra who's friends with Twyla. Why would you decide to bring in these voices that weren't strictly on the Tuckman line?
1: I mean, I didn't really have a choice. They kind of just show up and they demand to be heard. I think that it's a device. They're real characters to me, meaning that they're like valid as characters, but they're also devices because they help me if I want to like kind of get pulled back from a situation if it's intense or if I'm just – I want to stay in the scene but I don't want to be in the gaze of the character – the main character anymore that i can sort of have these tertiary characters i don't really call it, think of them as tertiary but that's the term that's been used as i've been doing press for this book you know these sort of smaller characters kind of pop up and they add something to the scene and they witness things in a specific kind of way and so i was having them and i was writing the first draft of the book they like all started showing up and like adding things to the scene but then maybe like four or five drafts in it was like I either had to like really do something with them or get rid of them in a way. So I just decided to like lean into it. And they kind of operate now as like little pieces of flash fiction too. But they just showed up for a reason. I kind of believe characters show up for a reason for the most part. It's very rare that if somebody shows up that I cut them.
0: And in a lot of cases – these were more native New Orleanians That's who could right. give more of a, a perspective on yes. the interlopers that come in.
1: Yeah, because I'm new in town there. I was having a hard time writing from a native New – like I was having a hard time giving myself permission to write from a native New Orleanian perspective. And so I decided to write from this outsider perspective, which is actually an incredibly valid perspective because 30% of the population has changed since post-Katrina. So there are 30% of the city is actually new people. So that was how I started. But then all of these like native New Orleanian characters were like, you actually are not allowed to write this book without us. And I was like, you're right. (laughs) And I couldn't argue with them. So I just let them in. And then I just kind of kept rolling with it. And as I grew more confident with them and confident with the idea of writing these characters outside of the Tuckman family or the immediate world, they really blossomed.
0: And you also got to address the scourge of so many larger cities, Airbnb and absentee landlords.
1: It's true. I mean, I think we just passed some city council has passed some rulings. I don't know how it is here. Are there a lot of Airbnbs here?
0: There are quite a few. Yeah.
1: Did they have there's been any legislation on it?
0: Uh, Not that I know of.
1: It's sort of fascinating because I just read an article about it when I was on the plane that it was like three or four years ago, basically Airbnb probably like paid off a lot of people. Or like nobody knew yet what they were going to bring and they kind of like moved in and there was just an uptick in all these places. And New Orleans like welcomed them in four years ago and was like, great. This is like, you know, we can put tourists in places, like homeowners can like make a little money on the side, that kind of thing. But then of course, like it was basically like people from like other state, like a lot of California people were coming in and buying places and not living there. And just like, it was just turning. I mean, this is probably like what happens here, right? Like they just turn it into these like, well, New Orleans is like big party houses and things like that, right?
0: Uh, Nashville, especially. Nashville is more I mean, that way, that. right?
1: Than mm-hmm. Memphis, probably. I mean, yeah, I remember reading about Nashville too. And so it's changing like the nature of all of these incredible historic neighborhoods. And New Orleans is finally kind of like figuring out how to grapple with that as best they can. That said, I have friends coming for New Year's Eve and they are managing somehow to rent a big, big house in New Orleans. So I, don't, I guess it's still the big house is party houses are still there. So I do talk about it a little, a little bit. I actually, you know, it's weird because in New York, everyone I know, Airbnbs. And also when I travel, I Airbnb and I had Airbnb at my house in New York. And I mean, half the people in my apartment building were doing it when they needed to make a little extra money, whatever, that kind of thing. So in that way, it's like, it can be kind of useful or helpful. And then when I moved down to New Orleans, I think I was sort of going back and forth a little bit and I'd bought a house down there. And so I like, for like a little bit, I was Airbnbing it because I didn't know any better. I wasn't informed, right? I didn't understand what it was really doing to the community. And I became educated about it and I stopped doing it and I support legislation on it. And I came from a place where it was kind of acceptable and I feel badly that I did it, but I just didn't know. I didn't know any better. Now I kind of know, I know better. I had to learn. You travel all over the world, like there's like every major city has is dealing with it and contending with it. I feel like in some places it's like it can be helpful for people to have the opportunity to rent things out. But in general, it really needs to be legislated.
0: On the same level as hotels and the same regulations need to apply to them.
1: They just did – I guess Jersey City, there was a big article in the paper. That's what the thing that I read in the New York Times that in Jersey City they passed all this legislation to get rid of Airbnb or to really legislate it. And Airbnb is supposed to be going public. This isn't very literary, sorry. <laughs> but Airbnb is supposed to be going public. I mean, I'm avidly watching it because I just want to see – I'm just interested to see how it's going to play out because it's, there are cities all over the world where it is really destroying the fabric of, of the culture there. Not just New Orleans, not just Nashville. All over the world. It's fascinating. I don't know. I mean, people just are buying these buildings – you know, historic buildings and turning them into cheap old little hotels. I don't know. What do you think? It's terrible?
0: Had I been paying attention, I lived in Germany 25 years ago in Hamburg and they constructed a new apartment building and with quotation marks because they turned it into a short-term residency.
1: 25 apartment. years ago.
0: Yeah. 25, yes. And it, it was hotels. It was essentially a hotel, which was not zoned for the area. And there was a big squabble over that. And I left town before yeah. it all got played out. Long,
1: yeah. It's a long history. I mean, you know, boarding houses, right?
0: Pensions yeah, over very, in Europe. It's, and
1: it's there's a long history of it, but there's some there's some for some reason this feels more insidious right now.
0: Well, especially with all the money behind it. If it were just you and your neighbors yeah. letting out stuff, but absentee landlords coming in and not caring about the, the neighborhood.
1: community. Yeah, that. So that is anyway that is part of the conversation of the uh, there or it is a tiny part of the conversation of the book. You know, because the book is really in a lot of ways it's about possessing things, owning things. I mean all this could be yours is really about shiny objects, right? Barbara, Victor's wife likes shiny objects.
0: Um redecorates every couple of years.
1: Redecorates, right? likes jewelry, likes yeah, she likes shiny objects. So all of it is of of a conversation. I Certainly I'm not on a high horse about it since I have now confessed that I Airbnb'd my house, but it's good to examine it and like examine your own complicitness in it. I mean, I tried to do that in the book, even though I'm not in the book in any kind of way, but I was interested in talking about it.
0: In living in times that have such quick technological turnover and disruptions and the political thing being so uh, fraught, how do you deal as a writer with these quickly changing landscapes and and how you deal with your characters and what you're wanting to say?
1: I write really fast put a book out every two years. You know, you just have to pick a point in time and write about it. And also the thing is that these themes are universal. And for me to write about like a bad, rich man, like some people in reading the book and being like, oh, it's like Bernie Madoff or oh, it's like Donald Trump or something like that. I mean, there's a long history of bad, rich men out there. Like pick one, (laughs) there's a (laughs) long line. So there is something that feels very modern and of the moment and contemporary about this book you know, I wrote it last summer. It feels like last summer to me when I read it. It's definitely like as a post-2016 election book. But the more specific you get, the more universal writing can become. And I think I probably could have written a very comparable kind of book about the 1980s. Or, and in fact, there are plenty of scenes set in the 1980s in this book or the 1950s, I could have written about the same kind of person and the same kind of family you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. These kinds of families have existed for a really long – messed up families are forever.
0: In my head so many times, I kind of saw a 1950s setting for the early days of Barbara and Victor, even though it was probably 20 years later.
1: Yeah, I think it's like the late 60s. They feel very timeless to me in a lot of ways. And maybe part of that trick of it is like not actually like having any social media in the book. I mean, there are cell phones in the book. It definitely feels like right now, but I am actually a very modern communicator. But in my books, I, would, I try to strip things down because I'm just not interested in like. I like reading in other people, and I support other people writing it, but it's just not what I want to be doing. I don't want to write these kinds of like. I mean, I don't know. I'm. I'm it's too late for me. I'm old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait till you get my old. Yeah. <laughs> But I did love the scene where Sadie was taking the iPad around the house and she saw the white couch and, and her yeah. ex-husband. I thought that was a fun scene. Yeah. And there is bits of humor in what can be a very sad story in all of this.
1: It's my, that's my secret weapon is my sense of humor for sure. Like, I mean I just believe that like, if you wait long enough, anything gets funny. And then also it's a safe place for me as a writer and as a human being to be able to use my humor throughout the book. And I think that my, you know, whatever, it's not like I have a massive readership, but I feel like people who read my books, mean this is my seventh book, so who have sort of followed along in my career know that they're going to get humor. I mean, I just can't imagine not writing a book that's funny. But also I have the kind of humor that sometimes you're, like when I give readings, people are like, there's a lot of nervous laughter because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, is that funny? And it's like, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But if you find it funny, then I think that's great. I usually mean for things to be funny if you are finding it funny, but also sometimes people don't get it and they just see it as very sad or depressing. And I'm probably, maybe my books aren't for them if they don't get the humor.
0: That sounds like you've hit the perfect level for you because there are those people that just don't get things.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I write the book that I want, like first and second drafts are really for me. And then- Once I start showing it to people and it gets edited and then it gets packaged and it gets reviewed and it gets talked about and dissected and people post little excerpts of it on Instagram and they tweet at me and all that kind of stuff. It's just somebody else's thing, then it becomes their book. So I know what I mean and what I intend with my work. I know what my voice is. I know what my writing style is. And I don't really, you know, either you're in it, you get it, or you don't. You're interested in it, or you're not. And I actually am not offended if you don't want to read my work because there are so many books out there and people come to literature or any kind of art, any kind of culture with certain desires. Like for me, I'm probably not going to watch a super sad movie. I'm going to watch a funny movie. That's just my taste. That's what I want to get out of movies at this point. So I get it if you want to come to a book and you want this kind of book, that kind of book, whatever it is, and my book might not work for you. So it's fine. I mean, I want everyone to love it, but I can't control where you're coming
0: from. Sorry to all the graphic designers out there. I usually don't pay too much attention yeah. to the covers of books, but I thought this one was very effective. It
1: was really in, good, in, yeah.
0: in showing a uh, storage facility rolling door with a, a padlock on it, and it just seems such a, a great metaphor for these people who have siloed themselves away to protect themselves.
1: Yeah. And there's sort of a – I'm just not giving any way to say this. It sort of like shows up again later. Like the, there's an actual storage unit that shows up way later in the book. And so I love those kinds of covers where – it means one thing, and then it sort of connect, it's like a little secret surprise that shows up later on, and then the cover has new meaning for you. I think that's really cool. I'm doing a talk on Saturday. I'm giving a keynote address at the CD Right Conference in Conway, Arkansas, and I'm doing my history of book covers, like my career, as told through the book covers of all of my books, and how sometimes you get put into certain boxes, and then sometimes you get a storage unit cover that looks really bold and awesome. Sometimes you get little ladies running through wheat fields.
0: So do you think this is the most effective book cover you've had?
1: Oh, I don't know. I, this one and the Middlesteens were really good. They were pretty solid. They just kind of like look like they're aggressive and forceful. A little bit of a challenge, but the color makes them inviting. Makes you want to pick it up.
0: Also like just – it's just a, a nerdy little bit that the padlock that's on there is known as, as a shrouded yeah. padlock. And I just thought that was an appropriate Oh, I didn't term. know that. Oh,
1: I'm going to tell my designer that.
0: Keeps people from using bolt cutters on what they call the hasp. Yeah. And
1: uh, Oh, that's great. Huh. Okay.
0: I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So you say two years between books. Do you have the idea for the next book?
1: I have a proposal. I'm going to do an essay collection if I can sell it or when I sell it, I should say. And then I'll have another novel after that. I have some ideas. We'll see what happens. I mean, I won't probably – I'll start writing this book or finish writing this book. I'm like maybe like a third of the way through it. At the beginning of 2020, which means I'll probably write it throughout 2020, which means it'll, I'll like submit it in 2021, which means it'll probably come out in 2022, 2022. But somewhere between finishing it and 2022, I'll start writing another novel. Yeah. I just kind of keep doing the book every two years. It's how I pay my bills.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're lucky to be in a position where that works for you. It could be taken
1: away from me at any moment. So trust me, I'm very grateful. I work very hard to stay where I'm at.
0: I've always enjoyed your books. Thanks. And uh, I know there are a great many people that who actually still read in America yes. <laughs> enjoy your books.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so uh, we thank you for, no, for sharing looks. them with us. Thank you so much. Jamie Attenberg is the author of the novel All This Could Be Yours, which is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of BookTalk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.